YouTube. Let's okay. See. All right. We're on. All right. So today we have a very special edition of Time and Place podcast today. Uh, we have with us uh, Dr. Case uh, Oliphant uh, with us, and as actually Abby's uncle. And uh, yeah, he's uh, agreed to come on with us and speak with us and uh, just kind of answer some of our questions and talk apologetics a little bit. So that's what we're going to do right now. And this will be recorded so we can we can uh, put it on the podcast later and everything as well. But we're going live now just to kind of get everything and then uh, we can upload it later. But yeah, so um, Abby, do you want to introduce your uncle for us? Yes, uh, you kind of already said his name is Dr. K. Scott Oliphant, professor of apologetics and systematic theology at Westminster, Philadelphia. Um, he has done this... What, since I was born? How many years yeah. have you been? <laughs> yeah, probably, you know, 30 years or so. Yeah. And um, honestly, I personally, I mean, growing up, my mom would always say, you know, he's he's a professor defending the faith. And I'm just like, OK, I didn't really understand what that meant. And it wasn't until recently, probably, that I started actually being able to read the work and understand because before it was kind of gibberish. So it's been really fun getting to, um, I guess, pry into his brain and hear his thoughts and everything. So I'm really excited to have you here and really grateful for you being on. Um, I was just going to have you, you introduce yourself, kind of just say how you got into all of this. Yeah, well, um, I uh, teach apologetics at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. I uh, was um, born and raised in Texas and um, became a Christian um, just out of high school. And um, I became a Christian through an organization called Young Life, and they were interested in sharing the gospel with um, high school kids. And um, once I was converted, then I uh, got involved with that ministry at a leadership level while I was in college. And um, when I was in college and working with Young Life and doing evangelism and things like that, I was also Hello. Hi, Dr. Alphant. Dr. Alphant, we're uh, I, not hearing you. I can, I can hear him now. Oh, okay. I'm not hearing him. Uh-oh. Dr. Alphant, can, can, he, can he hear you, Abby? No, I can't hear him anymore. Hmm. Okay. Well, he's still on, so we're we're still going. Uh, I don't know if he's talking and can't hear us, or something wrong with the microphone. Nothing's muted. Um, <laughs> not sure, but uh... oh, there he goes. Okay, do I send it to him again, Abby? Hello. Yeah, yeah Abby, can you hear me? Yeah, he's off. Yeah, he's off. Do you want to send him the link again? Yeah. He should just be able to click the same link, right? Right. If he if he knows he's off, uh, like that, we need to make sure. Okay, here he comes. Host can add me. Hi, hi, Dr. Alvin. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, that's all right. You know, it's it's the internet, so it's yeah, going to yeah. be trouble. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, you were, you were talking about after your conversion and, uh, I don't know like where it cut off for you, but that, that's kind of where, where we were left off. 
um, okay. through, through young life and, and, and all that. Right. Yeah. So, um, sorry about the glitch, but that's no, technology, technology today. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, I, um, I was converted through young life ministry. I began, um, to take philosophy courses at local university and I had a, a Christian philosophy professor and, um, he actually offered a course, um, on Francis Schaeffer. Uh, Schaefer in, in my day was, was a pretty big deal because he was um, discussing apologetic issues and he was interested in Christian worldview and um, uh, wrote some very uh, popular books in those days, even though for those days they were thought to be a little bit heady and, and intellectual. They were fascinating. He wrote The God Who Is There and he wrote um, He Is There and He Is Not Silent and escape from reason. And so I had a course where this philosophy prof professor in a, in a secular university was discussing all these issues. And um, that, that got me interested in apologetics. And um, from there, uh, I learned about Cornelius Van Til through a um, Christianity Today article, a magazine called Christianity Today. They had an article front page with Van Til's picture on it and did an interview with him. And, and I read that interview and immediately ordered one of his books. And, um, after trying to get my way through that book, I ordered another and then another and then another and just kept reading and reading and reading to try to understand it better. So that's that's kind of what got me into apologetics. And eventually um, we decided it would be best for me to go to seminary and try to study these things in a little more depth. So that's what I did and um, went back to Texas after seminary and pastored in a church for a little while and then came back to Westminster in 1991. And I've been been here ever since. Awesome. Awesome. That was quite a journey. <laughs> it was quite a journey. Yeah. Yeah. When you, yeah. when you started reading Van Til's books, was it, um, did it take you like a minute to start comprehending what he was saying or did it feel like it all, all just making sense? You were just eating it up. Well, I was eating it up, but not because I understood it all, but because I could at least see that there was a lot there that I needed to understand. So there, it did, it did not come um, immediately to me. It didn't come naturally to me. As a matter of fact, um, this is another story, but um, I I would take my book to my uh, philosophy professor and after class, he and I would go get coffee and I would start asking questions, reading from the book. And uh, a lot of the times he would say, yeah, I'm not sure what that means either. So um, he and I would talk about things and, and eventually um, there was a uh, an address on the back of the book for Westminster Seminary. So I actually wrote Westminster and I said, hey, I'm I'm reading this book. I'm having some um, questions. And would there be somebody there who could help me? And they sent me Dr. Van Til's home address and said um, he's retired from teaching now. So um, he, he said, feel free to write him. So so uh, Van Til and I uh, began a correspondence over a few years of question and answer back and forth. And um, we eventually actually. Uh, brought him down to uh, Texas where I lived and he was with us for four days and we had a little mini conference there on apologetics. So um, that was great fun. And that kind of opened up a lot of doors for me as well. So, so who, how would you say uh, Van Til's role in apologetics would be as far as specifically covenantal apologetics um, in the, in kind of that approach to it, who, who would he, cause I, as, the way I understand it, I, I read Defense of the Faith, and that's why I first saw your name was um, that it was that was actually edited by you, um, right. and so that's kind of how I, I became familiar with, with you in the first place. And then, um, but so Van Til, Cornelius Van Til, I always kind of thought of him as like the 
the grandfather of covenantal apologetics or kind of like the uh, progenitor of that, like the in, not inventor, I guess, but just kind of want to flesh it out these ideas. Is that a good characteristic or like who would you say or what would you say his role is in, in covenantal apologetics? Yeah, thanks. I, I think, um, yeah, I th what Ben Till wanted to do, um, see, here's here's kind of his story. He, he went to um, to Calvin College um, to get his first degree. And and um, as a Dutchman, that's sort of what you did. And so he went he went to Calvin in, in Grand Rapids and and studied um, Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bavink. And uh, since Van Til was uh, sort of grew up in Holland, you know, he could read Dutch as easily as English. So so he was studying these guys and reading Calvin and um, learning the Reformed faith uh, more and more deeply there. And then he went from there to uh, Princeton Seminary. And what he found out at Princeton, although he loved his professors there overall and, and loved his um, time there, but he did find some inconsistencies in some of his professors and what they were teaching, especially in the area of apologetics. And that that kind of concerned him. So he left, um, after he finished at Princeton Seminary, he went to Princeton University and got his PhD in philosophy in order to try to, to dive more deeply into some of these things. And he wrote his dissertation on um, absolute idealism, which was a big deal in those days. And one of the things Van Til wanted to do when Machen uh, finally convinced him to, uh, to come to Westminster, Westminster was brand new then, 1929. And and um, they needed professors because Princeton had uh, begun to uh, move into neo-orthodoxy. It was becoming an, a, a non-orthodox seminary. So Machen founded Westminster and needed an apologetics prof. And it, and it took him three times to, to finally get um, Van Til to agree to come. And one of the things Van Til wanted to do was just um, try to develop apologetics more consistently along the lines of reform theology. So take the reform theology that he learned at Calvin, uh, some of, of which he also learned at Princeton, and take that and, and see how that can be more consistently applied to defense of the Christian faith. So in that sense, I would say Van Til was able to concentrate on the discipline of apologetics uh, in a way that others hadn't done specifically uh, previous to him. Now, there are there are inklings throughout the history of the church, more than inklings. There are people throughout the history of the church who are saying some of the same things that Van Til was saying, but he was able to synthesize a lot of that and bring it together and uh, show the consistency of, of defense of the faith uh, with Reformed theology. And as he began to develop his approach at Westminster, um, in the mid to late 40s, uh, there were a couple of articles, I think it was two, maybe more articles written criticizing Van Til. And, and the uh, author of those articles labeled his approach presuppositional and presuppositionalism. So that's where the label came from. Mm. And, it, and it just and it just stuck. It was a label that was given to Van Til. He didn't really make it up. But because he talked so much in his writings about presuppositions, this author mm -hmm. thought it's presuppositionalism. Um, and that's a label that'll probably stick. Uh, I'm not particularly fond of it, but um, if people want to call it that, it's not a problem. I just don't think it, it communicates as well what Van Til was trying to do. It sounds a little bit too abstract. Um, mm -hmm. It's a little bit too generic. Um, I was talking to an apologist. Um, oh, my goodness. This was 30 plus years ago. So when I was living in Texas, an apologist came up to where I lived and and we were having a discussion after after one of the sessions, and, and I was talking to him about apologetics and asking him questions. And he said, 
are you presuppositional? And I said, yes. And he said, well, are you um, Carnelian or Clarkian or Schaeferian or Vantillian? And that was kind of my first clue that the label is a little bit too generic to adequately describe what Vantill was trying to do. So, you know, I think um, it can make apologetics seem too philosophical and apologetics really isn't supposed to be only philosophical. It can be that if it has to be that or needs to be that. And it does sometimes because philosophers will lodge objections against Christianity. But it's really a discipline that uh, every Christian is equipped to do because what, what we need to do it is the word of God, the truth of God and the spirit of God. And once we have that, we have what we need to uh, answer objections to uh, to Christianity. So one of the reasons I, I think covenantal is better is because it has more of a uh, reformed connotation to it than presuppositionalism. But I think the label presuppositional is here to stay. People are going to use it no matter what. But it's just not it's just not one that I'm, yeah. I'm that fond of. So I don't use it myself. It sounds like it started as as like came from a, an objection you said to to Van Til's arguments of, of more like an accusation yeah. that that kind of stuck. And yeah, that's exactly I, right. That's yeah, I, I I was wondering about that because um, yeah, presuppositional. You know, that's when I started getting into presuppositional apologetics and learning about it and everything. Is that was it? That's just what it was called. And so it's like okay, well that's that's what it is. Yeah. But then. Uh, you know, thinking about it, it's like, well, yeah, presuppositions. We all have our presuppositions on our worldviews and these things. And uh, I, I was like, it, it's so much more than that, though. It feels, you know, because I, yeah. I, I always like to call when I'm, when I'm explaining it to people. It's it it kind of goes that way. But then it's like I I always thought of it as a more faithful apologetic. Like you're arguing yeah. from scripture, not from reason. You're not conceding any ground first. So you're you're sharing apologetics and evidence and in, in you know, philosophy and logic and reason that is faithful to where those things come from, which is scripture. Yeah. And exactly. you're not, you're not, you know, throwing off the God of scripture for the God of reason or the God of logic or something. So it's just uh, in, as, in, which as Christians we ought to be doing. And so, yeah, I always thought about like, just, I always thought faithful apologetics was, was more of an accurate term, but then a co covenantal apologetics, that relationship aspect as well, uh, yeah, yeah, I think totally that's right. Good. I mean, you could, you could call it faithful is good. You can call it biblical. You can call it reformed apologetic. All of those labels are better, I think, than mm -hmm. presuppositionalism. Because when you when you when you think about presuppositionalism, you're talking to people, you know, someone who's an evidentialist. Well, now you're into these two isms, and yeah. they're already set over against each other. Yeah. And of course, uh, reformed apologetics has no problem with evidences. It's just a matter of how you understand those and mm -hmm. how you use those. You know, back in the day when when postmodernism was in its heyday and, and the postmoderns were saying, uh, you know, everyone's truth is his own or yeah. their own. You know, truth <laughs> is uh, exclusively determined by a group. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of group relativism. I had people saying to me, um, hey, you know, Van Til is the first postmodern because he recognized <laughs> that everybody just has presuppositions and they just interpret their world <laughs> no. in that way. And, uh, and I said, no, that, see, that's a misunderstanding. That's, yeah. that's why the term presuppositional can be so confusing at times. Now, now, granted, that's, you know, that's not the way Ventil wrote about it. But because the term is so generic, it can be yeah. bandied about in different ways and, and, and could even turn into a kind of relativism. So, you know, I hope one day the term dies, but I think it'll probably be with us for a while. And, and um, as long as we're careful to explain what we're talking about, I guess that's OK. But I, I just don't think it, it communicates at all. Yeah. The um, the burden of what Van Til was trying to do. 
Do you think it is, is one of those words that kind of di didn't change? It kind of changed with time, but now we're calling it this one thing. You know, I always think yeah. about like when I read an old book, you know, and they'll, they'll say he he grabbed him with such violence. And so, you know, it's like, well, that he didn't mean like he injured him or something, but that word just kind of means, you know what I mean? Or, or mm -hmm. it, so it changes meaning kind of over the times, but then the person writing it at the time didn't intend it that way necessarily. And that might've been like Van Til's use of the word and, you know, and yeah. things have changed, but yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think when Van Til was writing, you know, logical positivism was still around and people were talking mm -hmm. about facts and brute facts and those kinds of things and scientific empiricism. And, and in that kind of context, it's important for everyone to understand the, um, the reality of presuppositions and, and how they work when we're doing even scientific analyses and things like that. So it, it had a, a, a significant meaning and it wasn't one of those words that was sort of replete through the culture, but now it's kind of everywhere and everybody uses it and it's turned into yeah. a sort of relativistic term. So, so um, I'm all for burying it at some point. So, so how would you, how would you say, uh, how, how would you define, I guess, just kind of maybe as succinctly as possible, covenantal apologetics uh, against uh, what we consider evidential apologetics or philosophical uh, apologetics, just so we kind of know yeah. we talk about covenantal apologetics. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, there, there are at least a couple things, um, maybe three things that are important in, in, um, in the way Van Til was thinking about this and the way I've learned to think about it. Um, I think the first one, and this is why it's, it's a, um, an apologetic that fits within a reform context. The first one is that, um, people are uh, totally depraved, and that means uh, you and I, uh, before we were converted to Christ, uh, we weren't simply uh, sick on our beds needing to reach out for medicine. We weren't simply fledgling in the ocean if yeah. someone would throw us a life raft. We were dead at the bottom of the ocean, and we were decomposing. We were we were Lazarus in the grave, and and the only way that you and I can can understand the faith and, and can uh, come to Christ is if he calls us out of the grave like he did Lazarus and says, come yeah. forth. So because of the reality of total depravity, and that's a, that's a unique um, doctrine of Reformed theology. I think it's an important one. Paul makes clear that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, not sick. Right. So because of the reality of, of total depravity, um, we recognize that the only way hearts can be changed and people can be moved is through the work of the Spirit. And we also recognize that the Spirit works by and with the Word of God. So, so uh, the goal, Van Til's goal, was, was always to defend Christian faith, not just generic faith. And Christian faith means defending the faith according to what Christ has said in his word. So you, you, you begin to bring those things together and you recognize that the, that the word of God is the power of God, as Paul puts it in Romans 1.16, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Once you begin to see that, then the goal of apologetics in what, at whatever level you're communicating, whether on the street or or in the uh, ivory tower, the goal of apologetics is to communicate the truth of God faithfully. Um, now, that, that means, I think, um, that you're not opposed to evidences because uh, Scripture tells us, Paul tells us, that everything in the world uh, reveals God, and God reveals himself through everything that, it's, that is made uh, both external to us and internal to us. He reveals himself in our consciences, that is, in our hearts, where the works of the law are written, Romans 2, and, and he reveals himself 
uh, through everything that is made. So it's not that there's an evidence here and an evidence there. It's that everything evidences who God is. And because of our sin problem, which uh, all of us are under apart from Christ, because of that problem, uh, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So what apologetics is trying to do is to reach into that truth that God has put there in every person, because every person knows God, not savingly, mm -hmm. uh, but it, but uh, by virtue of the fact that God reveals himself, no person will have an excuse before God. So when you reach into that knowledge of God and you try to connect with that knowledge of God in your defense of Christianity. So So when you're speaking the truth of God, that truth of God will connect to people who know God and the spirit of God will use it in his own sovereign way, sometimes for purposes of conversion. You look at Paul in, in, at Athens in Acts 17, and that's one of the prime examples of, of um, that kind of apologetic discussion taking place. Uh, so I think once you understand the truths of, of the Reformed faith, uh, total depravity, uh, what we call the self-authentication of scripture. That is scripture carries its own authority with it because it's God's word. Once you recognize as Paul says that we all know God, but suppress the truth and unrighteousness, then you begin to see that apologetics uh, has to mold itself to those biblical truths and apply those biblical truths in, in a defense of Christianity. So that makes, that's a big difference from some, someone who would say in an evidential, depending on the kind of evidence, whether empirical or, Irrational, but let's say uh, in a kind of Thomistic context, that is, those who would follow Thomas Aquinas, um, everything that comes to be has a cause. The universe came to be, therefore God. Right. Um, you know that there, there's it's not that there's anything. Van Til would say the theistic proofs he would say are quote objectively valid. He would say that uh, following uh, one of his heroes, Herman Bavinck. But the problem is. Um, when, when those who are apart from Christ understand those kinds of things, they're going to filter those through their own unbelief mm -hmm. and their own context. So we have to be careful when we're using those kinds of evidences to recognize, number one, where we're standing. As you were saying earlier, we're standing on God's own truth in order to say those sorts of things. And we need to see that those to whom we speak are not standing there. And so we have to make it as clear as we can when we use those kinds of discussions. Right. So, so what would you say is is the difference um, between sharing the gospel and apologetics? Because I think they're like in 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 a lot of church, at least in my experience, kind of growing up in church and, and getting into apologetics, there was never really a an area for that. Just like in the church, like there was an area for youth ministry or for any, any other thing. We had evangelism ministries and stuff but but that was always like we'll share the gospel you know invite people to church and tell people about jesus and things and then but apologetics always seem to be like separated from that of like well that's kind of fun to study you know <laughs> on, on spare time but we're not going to actually make it a part of our active ministry of evangelism or, or like so there's always like this this seems to be this difference between share the gospel tell people about jesus and, and that is a main drive and a main focus of course and then apologetics but I, I have a hard time seeing the difference because I feel like apologetics is the defense of the faith in that you get an objection or an accusation against Christianity and you, you defend the faith. And But that seems to always come when I'm sharing Jesus, right? <laughs> there's always yeah. a question or always an objection or always, you know, I mean, if there's not, great. You know, if the Holy Spirit is working and someone repents and, and comes to Christ, great. But there's usually some sort of uh, mental or cultural um 
objection there that, that must be dealt with. And so you almost inevitably come to apologetic. So what would you say is the difference, I guess, or why that, why there seems to be a difference between sharing Jesus, sharing the gospel and apologetics? Yeah, I think one of the main reasons for the difference, again, is because um, apologetics in, in a, in a non-reformed context is, is typically thought about, some people, some people call it pre-evangelism. So it's one of those mm. things that you're you're meant to be doing to sort of get people up to the level of theism, a kind of generic theism, and then from theism, you you add the gospel uh, into that. Um, and and um, Fred Howe used to teach um, at Dallas Theological Seminary. He he contributed an essay um, to Van Til's Festschrift um, back in the early 1970s, and and the whole essay. The book is called Jerusalem and Athens, um, collection of essays, and some of those essays Van Til responds. And um, the, the, the thrust of Howe's uh, essay was uh, critiquing Van Til because he didn't make um, a distinction between apologetics and evangelism. And, and it was a pretty long uh, essay, and it was actually uh, well-written, and um, you, know, you read along. And then Van Til, I think, as I remember, has maybe a paragraph at the end of it, and he says, well, Dr. Howe, you're right. I don't make a hard and fast distinction between these two because we're not meant to do that. In both cases, what we're trying to do is to talk to people about Christ. Now, it, yeah. you know, what, what I say to students here at the seminary is we could think of apolo apologetics as premeditated evangelism. And, and what I mean by that is um, it's meant to be um, for us more thoughtful. I mean, our, our, our evangelism should be that, but it's meant to be more thoughtful in that we we really want to take seriously what people's objections are, and we want to think about those. We want to ask questions, uh, but in all of that, our goal is not to make people uh, theists generally. I mean, theists go where atheists go in the end. We want people um, to understand Christianity. So, um, so there. It's, it's on a continuum. Uh, sharing the gospel, yes, that's important. That's necessary. Uh, preaching the gospel is the means that God uses to bring his people to himself. It's a necessary means. Um, and part of that ought to include our defense of Christianity. If you read um, particularly Jesus's interactions with um, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, um, the Jews that were mad at him, uh, you will notice that he is a supreme apologist because oftentimes what he does is he takes their own views or their own words or their own commitments, and then he shows them definitively how they've perverted and distorted what they claim to believe. He, he's not just saying, believe me, but he's saying, um, you you search the scriptures because you think in them you'll find eternal life. Well, good for you but you don't understand the scriptures because I'm there on every page and you, mm -hmm. and you don't see the one standing in front of you. I mean, that's an apologetic, isn't it? It's, it he's telling them, well, it's good that you're, you're searching your, your Hebrew Bible, um, but you've missed um, the content of every page because you've missed the Messiah himself. So I think we should, um, you know, if we, if we uh, focus our apologetic more on, what scripture is telling us and then move from that if we need to, to philosophical arguments or discussions. And not everybody needs to do that. Not everybody wants to do that or is equipped to do that. But if we, if we do that, um, it's gotta be always grounded in, in what God has said and in his truth, because only there is a resolution to any question or objection that's given. Yeah. 
So yeah, there is that. Yeah, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Abby. Oh, you're fine. I was just going to ask. Um, so with all of the things that y'all have been discussing, it definitely seems like apologetics needs to be a forefront of the Christian life and the foundation and the way that we think about all things, um, even in our own lives. So when as a parent, when and at what age do we start introducing apologetics to our children? Should they be growing up being ready to give that defense of the faith? And how do we incorporate that? Yeah, um, I think they they absolutely should. Um, but the way to do that, I think, is to, um, you know, kids, when, when I was in Young Life working with high school kids, um, they ask uh, some of the hardest questions that, that you can ask. And I was just supposed to be doing quote unquote evangelism. <laughs> yeah. And I'd be in the middle of a Bible study and we'd be uh, reading a passage in scripture and someone would say, well, um, why, why did this, why did this person suffer like this? What was, what was God thinking when, when, um, when he made the world and, and Adam and Eve uh, ruined it, you know, and I was just kind of a fairly new Christian trying to, trying to study the Bible. And I, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I have to get back to you on that. So I think, um, all to say kids, kids usually ask really good questions. They're, they're very perceptive. And, and one of the things we want to help our children understand is the same thing we understand, and that is that um, you're not going to be able to share the gospel or defend the Christian faith or or do anything like that um, until and unless you recognize the uh, the authority of the Word of God and the authority of Scripture. And so you want to always be taking your uh, your children back to the Bible, help them understand what the Bible is. Right. So um, I think that's important. Um, especially as our children are younger, they need to know um, what foundations you uh, as a parent are seeing and, and what kinds of truths are important for them to recognize. Um, kids ask a lot of questions about heaven and, um, you know, about the reality of sin and evil. And um, it, it's, it's, it's crucial for us, to, for our children to recognize that we don't believe what we believe because we're smarter than other people or because uh, we have special in insight. We believe what we believe because God has spoken. And when God speaks, he speaks with authority. So if we if we begin that way, um, you know, I have um, 11 grandchildren and, and they all have their own unique uh, perspectives and questions. And we, we hear about a lot of those when when um, our kids will talk to us and and they're very perceptive questions, and, and to be able to answer those uh, properly uh, is a way to prepare them for standing firmly as they grow older and, and defending the Christian faith um, the longer they live, which is, is massively important because the attacks now uh, are, in, in my view, more severe than they've been in our culture right. in decades. Right. Right. Yeah, that, that those, those hard questions were kind of the uh, the reason we're, we wanted to do this podcast in the first place to start this podcast called the time and place uh is is you know when you're in a bible study you're in sunday school and someone asks a question about revelation book of revelation or something and it's like well mm -hmm. that's a hard you know is evolution true I'm like uh well that's a there's a lot to go in there this isn't really the time and place for that so we can have that discussion later but you know it's like well this is the time and place to talk about all those sort of uh, yeah, uh fringe fringe issues and things that we don't ever seem to really have time for, uh, for, for plenty of valid reasons in, in 
normal church and Bible study context and stuff. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's kind of so what we hope to tackle here. And that in that learning to engage the culture, we talked about those questions that uh, our kids will have. Yeah, I think that was uh, something that Francis Schaeffer uh, was unique in that he wasn't. He wasn't afraid to engage culture in, in like movies and art and different philosophies and things. Whereas I think uh, at that time, a lot of Christians were kind of just wanting to pretend didn't exist, right? Yeah. And like you know, those, mo- oh, well, you know, those are just bad. Those are not Christian. Those are not. And he's like, well, let's let's engage this world. Let's. I think there's a redemptive quality there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, there is no God made music. God made beauty. God made art. God made all these things, and they, they are being twisted and, and perverted right. in different ways. And and I think we have a role to redeem these things, you know. And that was that's yeah. yeah, I think that's definitely something we should teach our kids rather than just kind of sheltering them against non Christian this or non Christian that or whatever, you know. Right. Um, yeah. I think that's good. And yeah, Schaefer was um a master at that. And the the man that I work with in the apologetics department of Westminster here, his name is Bill Edgar, and and uh, Bill became a Christian at Labrie. Um at the table with Francis Schaefer in, wow. in Switzerland while he was, while Bill was in college. And, and so he got to know Schaefer well and um, knows, um, knew the family and, and was involved with Labrie. And uh, yeah, the, the great, and, and Bill's handed down a lot of Schaefer's uh, genius to, uh, to me and to our students. And you're right. One of the things that Schaefer did so well is he had uh, not just a rejection of what's going on in the culture, but a Christian analysis of what's mm-hmm. happening in culture so that people can say, yeah, it's not just bad, mm-hmm. um, but, but it's what it promotes and, and, um, and how it promotes it. Um, that's, that's uh, crucial for us to see so that we're not subtly buying into, you know, the, the, uh, the ideas, the cultural or philosophical ideas, secular ideas that are being foisted on us by this thing. And, and Schaefer was great at that kind of analysis. Bill actually teaches a course here on on film um, for mm-hmm. some of our THM students, and that's what he does. He, he analyzes films, and they talk about them, write, write papers on them, that sort of thing. So it's very important for us to see our culture in that way. And Calvin's uh, great um, illustration is that we're to look at everything through the spectac- through the spectacles of Scripture. So we put on our our Bible glasses, and and every time we're we're looking out, we're we're looking out through those spectacles in whatever we're seeing, and that's that's an important point, I think. And I guess that really, when you're living that way, then your children are also seeing you live that way, which helps them come to the understanding of apologetics in itself. It is, yeah, exactly. That's right. And you can talk to your children about those things. I mean, you know, your kids may watch Disney uh, movies, that sort of thing. Well, you, you know, you've got you've got all kinds of openings from those, and and it's not mm. wrong for them to yeah. to enjoy the sights and the sounds and the colors. But uh, you know, Disney is the king of of, of utter secularism and and mm. um, cultural bankruptcy. So it's it's you know you have to be careful. I think the way you talk uh, with your children about those things, but just help them understand that um, you know watching those things may not be sinful, but imbibing you know what they're singing about or talking about um it will not give you the answer that you need in life it just won't do it it's a it's a fairy tale literally yeah i i think i think we can we might seem easier just to kind of close ourselves off into these sort of christian bubbles and then not not really just have to have a response for any of these kinds of things like we, we did an episode on music and we're talking about uh, secular music versus Christian music, and I, it kind of struck me of like, well, there there is no 
secular music any more than there's a secular sunset or a secular breeze like it's these things belong to god now it can be manipulated to glorify man and to lead to to the wrong throne but you know the music itself like that's you know god created these things and, and they should be redeemed instead of just split like we were giving them this music we're giving them that thing we're giving it's like well no, that's not, we had these things first, you know? Yeah. And we need to take them yeah, back. And that's, that's exactly what Dr. Edgar uh, teaches. Um, he teaches, he got his degree from Harvard in music. And, and one of the mm. things he teaches is, um, you know, there's no such thing as quote unquote, non-Christian music because music reflects something of the beauty of God's creation. You know, there's yeah. a rhythm to yeah. it. There's a harmony to it. Um, that can only happen in a world that has order. That and the, and the only world that can have order is the world that's created by God. So, so just because people ruin it um, doesn't mean um, that it is in and of itself non-Christian. It means it's been taken and used in the wrong way. Yeah. So kind of along those lines, as far as uh, Christians and and what we're comfortable with in these things, um, sh should Christians be more comfortable with debate and apologetics and that kind of uh, discourse uh, with people because I, what I tend to see is, well, we don't want to just write fight and we don't want to argue and we don't want to just, you know, just go back and forth and, and argue with somebody. So, but that, that very often turns into no discourse at all, no conversation or like de debate has become a, a bad word or like argument has become a bad word. But I think a long time ago, it was a very normal way to discuss ideas and, and share things and actually share the gospel. Um, mm -hmm. Is that, where, where do you see that in the church as far as like argument and apologetics and debate and discussion, those kinds of things? Yeah, I think, um, you know, that the context is, uh, is all determinative and those, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Um, the first, the first problem we have is we, we live in a culture that has forgotten how to think and, and what, um, what technology is doing to our brains is, mm -hmm. is making that worse and worse as time goes on. Um, you know, the, the things that I read about what our our iPhones do to us mm. um, as, as we have to be continually on and, and, and ready to engage and answer this and answer that. And and we never turn those things off. What that does is is keep us from reflection. It keeps us from uh, any kind of serious meditation on on any sort of truth or, or idea. So. So we live in a culture where ideas are anything but paramount and, and oftentimes are negated. And that and that moves to the kind of situation we're in now that that facts don't really matter. Uh -huh. So all that to say, um, I think discussion about these things, um, back and forth uh, argumentation is very useful. Christians uh, ought to engage it and, and, and ought to do it. My own view, and this is just me personally, because I get requests like this uh, a good bit. My own view is that I don't do this on a stage and I don't do this, you know, one person pitted against another person, mm -hmm. because that what that context says is uh, we're going to we're going to divide up and root for somebody. And we're going to mm -hmm. we're going to we're going to figure out who wins. And yeah. that's that's just not what that's not what apologetics is supposed to be doing. Apologetics is about the gospel. It's about. Uh, who Christ is. And, and once the context is set up where you have somebody uh, who's going to lose and somebody's going to win and, 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 you know, you're, you got your people divided up, you've lost the opportunity really um, to, to communicate what you want to communicate in the right context. That doesn't mean God can't use those things. I'm sure he has, 
but the ones that I've heard, the ones I've listened to, it's just, you know, Hey, my guy won. No, your guy lost. My guy won. You know, and that's, yeah. that's just not, um, I just don't think, I think that um, trivializes the importance of what we're trying to do when we're talking about something as um, fundamental life and death as the reality of the gospel. So uh, those things need to be done, should be done. Um, the context is going to, uh, in some ways, determine if it's the proper way to do it. That's that's my own view on it. Yeah, those th- yeah, and a lot of those those things tend to kind of be won by who says something the right way, not necessarily what they're saying, but how they're saying it and, yeah. and body language and things plays a huge factor in that. And then it's like, oh, he won because he stayed calm or something. And it's like, well, I mean, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. But, well, and, at, and at that point too, I mean, if you're really looking into getting into apologetics to help somebody come to the Lord through the Holy Spirit, you're in this debate situation and you almost know that the other person that you're debating that's prepared, that's invested, that's really only in it to win the argument is probably not, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? That's going to be a lot different of a conversation and a debate than if you were to just get into it um, in the mall or at a friend's house or, you know, yeah. somewhere where you're coming at exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. So if, if you've got an unbeliever and you're in a public debate, just think about what an unbeliever is thinking on a stage where they're now debating a Christian. There's no way they're thinking, hey, I'm going to be open to this guy's communication <laughs> of the truth. Right. What they're thinking is, I got to put this guy down and I got to do it yeah. in my own way. So, you know, I think it sets up the wrong kind of context when we're dealing with things as uh, radically important as as the gospel. We had a debate on campus uh, 20 years ago, well, maybe 10 years ago, uh, an atheist and a and a Christian and, and we got a phone call and they wanted to do it here. And so we let them do it here. And it, it was, you know, it was interesting and, and the place was packed as you might expect. Uh, but, you know, after it was over, the whole discussion was uh, who won that and who lost that. And, you know, one guy, one guy had a British accent. So most people liked his stuff better. The, the atheist was British, so they liked him better. But, you know, that doesn't determine whether, yeah. uh, whether uh, someone won or lost. And, it, you know, and those, I think that that kind of situation can be in certain contexts um, useful, but that's just not my way to go. Yeah, those the, the, they tend to seem be more uh, useful for the people watching, and I think that's kind of the, the the point of that. It's like, well, I'm not going to, you know, this person is probably not going to lose face in front of everyone and, and, and repent, right. even if he does feel a certain movement by the Holy Spirit. You know, that might not yeah. be there, but but other people watching, I think, is a lot. You know, so I watch. Um, James White does or used to do a lot of debates and mm-hmm. um, so I watched those and and you know never once did anyone say you know what you got a good point I'm gonna uh, give up Mormonism or give up uh, right. atheism but but the people watching is, is the the response and the in the feedback from people watching um, I think is is kind of the the thing and and maybe it's from you know when Jesus was talking with the Pharisees he knew their hearts and stuff but it was for the people watching and for people uh, kind of on the sidelines as far as the response and feedback, but um, yeah, that, uh, that I think that's the, the positive that could come out of that. But yeah, it's the yeah. conversation there. Um, yeah, well, we've kept we've kept you a little longer. Than yeah. Did, did you have Did you have anything that um, any last questions or anything you wanted to say to close up? Who me? Yes. No, I'm good. I've, I've said all I've said all I know. Now you know everything I know. I don't know anything <laughs> else. What I've said today. 
All right. Yeah, we probably probably should wrap it up because I'll just keep asking questions. <laughs> so, I do have one question. I did I did uh, notice in your book um, you mentioned false religions uh, compared to uh, as bizarro religions, which mm -hmm. uh, I really appreciate the Superman reference. Uh, <laughs> I worked at a comic book store all through college, and Julia oh. both did. And uh, yeah, so that's always great to see in a book uh, apologetics. Uh, mention of bizarro and super superman <laughs> yeah well, i grew up reading those those comics and loved them so uh it's something that came to mind it's kind of yeah. like it, fe it feeds off the original but is the opposite of it yeah. yeah perfect perfect distorted mirror image of, of things right Absolutely. exactly yeah awesome well great well dr oliphant thank you very much i appreciate You're it welcome. um we're yeah, so grateful thank you great. for coming on oh nice to chat with both of you absolutely right. thank you, you very much okay you too bye-bye bye-bye